How do we define certainty? Confidence in continued success that things will just work out is a lasting folly of the American experiment. We don't need to worry about this or that because it all just lasts. We built it. We built the system that supports it. We squash anything that could break the system. We, as a country, have so much certainty. President John Quincy Adams was certain in the future when he became the president in 1825. He was just under 60 and America was in the tenuous middle state between the War of 1812 and the launching of the Civil War a few decades later. We were slowly building up our military piece by piece, dreaming of a certainty against another war. The War of 1812 was huge for America as Britain, Canada, and groups of Native Americans took on the new nation and caused some serious, serious damage. America primarily brought themselves up against the Royal British Navy, the most extensive navy in the world. The Battle of Lake Champlain was fought between the two nations and the Americans barely scraped through. In the coming decades, America wanted an insurance policy. We had made it through the war by the skin of our teeth, bolstered by the Battle of New Orleans, won by General Andrew Jackson. But President John Quincy Adams wanted more than just confident generals. He wanted strong boats, and a lot of them. He had a perfect example in the USS Constitution, which was a powerful wooden warship that garnered the nickname Old Ironsides, despite not being made of iron. It was built of a very special tree, the live oak. Native across the southeast of the country, but mostly around the Gulf of Mexico, the live oak tree was sturdy and dense and abundant. It is a heavy wood, and it was perfect for the interior of a boat. Old Ironsides had shown that the live oak could really make for a spectacular boat. So the president invested in 1829 by creating the first national tree farm, known as the Naval Live Oak Reservation, right in Florida's panhandle on a small peninsula south of what would soon be Pensacola. It was surrounded by Pensacola Bay and the Santa Rosa Sound right on the Gulf of Mexico. Besides the small patches of live oak along the Texas and Mexico border, nowhere else in the world had access to this particular tree. In just three years, this and other farms were the source of America's fast-growing navy. For three decades, the Naval Live Oak Reservation was a sure thing. Presidents came and went, including the famous General Andrew Jackson, and the Civil War arrived. The live oak ships that were once a sure thing had now lost their luster. Now, as the states were going to war with each other, our navy had to be improved. Steel and steam carved a path through American industry, and the purpose of the Florida live oak farms fell to the wayside. The farms returned to the public, until eventually becoming part of the Gulf Islands National Seashore, which extends west into the neighboring Mississippi. There isn't much on that little peninsula. It's just across the bay from the massive city of Pensacola, but the area itself has a significantly smaller population. Beyond the Naval Live Oaks Reservation, there is a small town, a halfway point between Pensacola and Pensacola Beach, with a population just below 6,000. It has maintained a similar population for the past 30 or so years. The town is called Gulf Breeze. It is a small community, quote, surrounded by water on three sides and closed off by a national park on the fourth, end quote. 
It is in this town, just over 30 years ago, that a small family led by Patriarch Ed Walters captured dozens of images of supposed UFOs. One of the most famous and controversial cases of UFO photography happened on that same little peninsula, miles from the forgotten oaks that once kept the Navy afloat. There, UFO investigators and government officials swarmed to discover one thing, the truth. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, the Floridian Podcast. This week, the Gulf Breeze sightings, Florida's most famous aliens, and the ways we trick ourselves and each other. It is rare that you get a story straight out of the proverbial horse's mouth. Stories are rarely collected so succinctly as the Gulf Breeze sightings have been. Ed and Francis Walters, however, did not waste any time. The events recounted occurred between November of 1987 and May of 1988. The 31st anniversary of the last sighting is this upcoming Wednesday. This book came out in 1990. It includes first-person accounts of the stories as well as every photo taken by the family during the period. Ed describes the town as idyllic, small and safe where residents wandered the street late after dark. He adds that the citizens are, quote, far from liberal. They are, by and large, religious, family-oriented, and hardworking, end quote. They are situated across the bay from a naval base with an airport of its own, bringing in planes at all hours. This was Ed's first guess as to what he was seeing on November 11th, 1987, when the first sighting occurred. He was working in his home office at dusk when he spotted the craft. It descended towards his residential street, and he rushed out with his Polaroid to snap a photo. According to his account, he was then blasted by a blue light from the craft, lifted from the ground, and a voice told him to remain calm. When he resisted, the voice from the craft seemed to be angry and confused. It then projected images of dogs into his mind, dropped him to the pavement, and disappeared. I'm going to warn you now, it doesn't get any less strange from here. Ed developed the pictures and showed them to his wife, Frances. Some are clearer than others, but they all look relatively the same. The sky is a fantastic deep blue, typical for Florida evenings in the fall. In most of the five pictures, an Italian cypress makes up nearly half of the frame. Some power lines, clouds, and other trees can be seen in the fore and background, but there, in the top left corner of the image, there's a glowing white light on top of a thick saucer with an open circular bottom that is producing similar white light as the top. There are dots along a middle rim. It is in different orientations and positions in the five images, with the fifth being the most crystal clear, to the point where you can see that central rim very well and its dark windows. They are surreal, honestly, but they strike just the right chord. Haphazard enough to appear natural, ominous enough to appear otherworldly, uncertain enough to spark every theory imaginable. If it had just been these five pictures, the Gulf Breeze sightings might have just been a blip on the radar of UFO history, an amazing occurrence with some really compelling photography. But UFO history is not that simple. It is one filled with contradictions, and up to 1987, it had seen just over 40 years of constant shift and highly unusual events. 1947, June 24th. Kenneth Arnold, a private pilot based in Idaho, was flying near Mount Rainier in Washington State. It was the daytime, not nighttime like so many UFO stories occur, when Arnold spotted a startling light in the sky. 
he noticed nine objects, each about the size of a small plane. Eight were circular, but the ninth was quote-unquote crescent-shaped. They moved south, supposedly going 1,400 miles per hour. They vanished from view. Within a month, a man in the same area, Frank Ryman, spotted a flying saucer and caught a picture. To our modern eyes, it is a grainy photo with a white oval in the center. To the people of post-war America, it was proof. Four days after this famous picture was grabbed, the U.S. Army reported a UFO crash outside of Roswell, New Mexico. They later redacted the statement, but the conspiracy began. In the span of just two weeks, America was thrown headfirst into the UFO craze. Just under six months later, in January, a member of the Kentucky Air National Guard named Captain Thomas F. Mantle died in a plane crash. He was a World War II veteran, just three years out of national service. He had fought in Normandy. He was working at Fort Knox on January 7, 1948, when a motorist called in a report of a circular object in the sky headed west. It was seen again outside of Fort Knox by a sergeant. This was no rumor now, and actions had to be taken. Four planes were sent in pursuit, and Captain Mantle was one of them. Pilots fell off one by one, but Mantle did not give up the chase, even as the UFO ascended to the heavens. Mantle quickly ran out of oxygen, supposedly blacked out, and the pilot was lost. For America, there was no turning back now. The following decade saw more and more reports of UFOs in our skies. Especially during the summer months, Americans all over the country would turn to the heavens to find lights and objects and saucers and little green men. The term UFO came into popularity, meaning unidentified flying object. The term of flying saucers fell away. Pop culture took up the stories, pumping out alien and UFO-based fiction left and right from television to novels to film. The culture of weird was everywhere now, and conspiracies ran rampant. Note, these are the fun kinds of conspiracies, like secret alien testing bases below a desert, not ignorant and dangerous conspiracies like saying vaccinations are dangerous. They're not. Meanwhile, the U.S. was facing a whole new set of troubles. The last war had marked a significant change in battlefield tactics. Just as the live oak ships became a thing of the past in favor of steel ships before the Civil War, aerial combat was becoming as significant a factor in war as ground combat. The U.S. military had to be certain that all fronts were covered, not just land and sea, but sky. We had atomic bombs now, and we needed an air fleet that functioned on its own, without the assistance of the Navy. The Air Force was then created on September 18, 1947, four months after Kenneth Arnold's first sighting, right in the middle of that craze. These things happening in conjunction with each other, to me, is no accident. People often write off UFO stories as a case of weird people believing weird things, but that is a complete erasure of a very real fear. We as a country were equipped for war now, and our enemies were trying to catch up. The fear of communism swept the country embodied by the looming threat of the Korean War. The American public had just faced devastation for years, and new conflict was just around the corner. It's no wonder that we were looking to the skies. Just as UFOs started popping up and the Air Force braced for an uncertain future, the Soviet Union made a bold declaration in October of 1947. The Soviets had named America as the bad guys of the world, stating, quote, that the United States was seeking global domination through American imperialism, end quote. All within a few months, the certainty of a prosperous American future was split down the middle. Aliens roamed the skies and the Russians were coming. The Cold War was on. 
Which brings us back to Gulf Breeze. It had been 40 years since the Cold War officially began. We were on our eighth president since the conflict started. Ronald Reagan was in the office. We had gone through the Korean and the Vietnam Wars. We had seen major political and social change, but two things seemed to be the same. The Russians were the enemy, and the aliens were in our skies. Ed Walters had those first five photos published in the local newspaper on November 19, 1987. He sent them in anonymously. He didn't mention that he had been supposedly zapped by the craft, just the pictures. The next day, people in town were alight with the conversation. The pictures looked real. Ed notes, quote, They were thinking, asking questions, and that was what I had hoped for. End quote. He was clearly excited and was starting to process the experience when a sudden humming enveloped his senses. It was similar to the humming he had heard when the UFO zapped him eight days earlier. Later that evening, along with the humming, a voice supposedly spoke to him using different languages ranging from an unspecified quote-unquote African language to Spanish, then back to English. He stepped outside with his camera to see that the craft had returned and took four more pictures looking almost identical to the previous five. Deep blue with the Italian cypress blocking the view and a thicker, saucer-like object with a glowing hole at the base hovering over some power lines. The voice coming from the craft seemingly threatened Ed now, warning him to not take the pictures nor publish them. After speaking with him, it had shot into the sky without warning, leaving Ed shaken. He was scared now that the UFO would be coming for the residents of Gulf Breeze and would, quote, snatch somebody up with that blue beam, end quote. He soon began keeping a shotgun in his truck at all times. Ed was afraid. The UFO, to him, was now a threat. The list of sightings were growing. Wednesday of the following week, November 25th, saw reports of others seeing UFOs filling the front page of the local newspaper. Some stories even dated back a few weeks, a few occurring the same night of that first sighting. This is when the Mutual UFO Network, also known as MUFON, got involved. They are one of the most famous international groups dedicated to studying UFOs and their sightings. They would be involved in the story soon enough. The next few weeks and encounters started to ramp up in intensity. Ed starts chasing the craft, sometimes with a gun, but always with his camera. His accounts of the dialogue between himself and the craft are what start to make the story push ever closer to fabrication. At one point, the UFO demanded that he approach it. Ed, according to the story, grabbed his camera and his gun and muttered, Not in this life. It's all very action movie, a little bit too Bruce Willis for my taste. Ed saw a metallic alien figure, caught a photo of a blue beam leaving the ship, and felt justified as more witnesses came forward in the story. Strange men started appearing at the family doorstep, and the Walterses decided to contact MUFON. Within a few weeks, sightings were everywhere. It was hysteria. Ed was seeing three at a time, at all hours. Others were catching photos that seemed to hold up to his accounts. Members of the Air Force came to seize Ed's photos. He lied and kept them hidden. As 1988 approached, the tension in Gulf Breeze was high. In Washington, D.C., at the exact same time, Ronald Reagan was navigating his own set of tensions. During a three-day summit from December 8th to the 10th, the General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, spoke with the President about resolving several conflicts and moving away from the Cold War. Amongst the debates were the Iran-Iraq War, conflicts over movements within the Middle East, and the elimination of chemical weapons. 
the last topic proved to be the most successful when the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty was signed, essentially destroying the missiles and launch sites based in Europe on both sides. Thousands of missiles were scrapped, and for the first time in decades, the threat of nuclear war was being diminished. However, documents later revealed that the Soviets were willing to give more, but the Reagan administration declined to find common ground. Reagan was just over a year from the end of his presidency, and his team was facing more and more troubles as they sought to cement his legacy. The Cold War, 40 years later, still sizzled onward. 1988. It had been a confusing two months for the people of Gulf Breeze. Everyone was starting to see things. Ed and Francis were encountering things at a new heightened level. The events were being examined by physicists, local police, and UFO experts. Ed was given a polygraph test in which the final result was, quote, that Mr. Walters truly believed that the photographs and personal sightings he has described are true and factual to the best of his ability, end quote. Polygraphs are, of course, often fabricated or incorrect, so take that information with a grain of salt. In fact, let's interrogate all of this for a moment. I've presented the events of the first two months of sightings as absolute fact for the purpose of the story, in the same way Ed did. Take a moment now to question your certainty. Do you believe Ed and Francis? If you haven't seen the pictures, I'd really recommend looking them up. They are absolutely compelling, but are they real? It's hard to tamper with Polaroids, that's true, but double exposure photography is popular and easy to replicate. Okay, let's say you believe the Walters family. No one ever catches compelling photography of UFOs. How did one guy somehow have his camera and catch dozens of photos of the exact same craft over the same town over the course of six and a half months? Now, let's say you don't believe the Walters family. Where did they lose you? Was it the laser beam? The pictures of dogs in the mind? The voices in the heads? I'll tell you where they lose me. As someone fascinated in stories like this, I find myself landing in the Fox Mulder camp. I want to believe. I desperately want to believe. Some of the best stories about aliens or Bigfoot or ghosts are when people are caught completely by surprise and react in fear or confusion or disbelief. What happens, however, when the story stops being immensely human and starts to feel very melodramatic? Three events showcase the Walters' transition from easy-to-process accounts to dramatic, almost comical stories, and the unusual pictures accompanying them don't make it any better. The first is the tenth sighting of the total 20, called The Road Shot. It's January 12, 1988, and Ed had returned home from a construction job. He remembered, however, that he had forgotten an important detail at the site, some equipment to help install AC. At 5 p.m. on a winter's night, Ed hopped in his truck and set off back to the site. A flash of dazzling white light caught him off guard and almost caused him to veer off the road. Behind him, just a few yards away, was his UFO, hovering just off the ground, seemingly pursuing him and blasting him with white light. He snapped a picture, then pulled over and hid under his truck. Five quote-unquote creatures stepped from their craft and demanded him to come out from hiding. When he didn't, they departed, and he got back in his truck, headed home. The picture here is hilarious. I wish it wasn't, because it might help his story, but it's so funny. 
There, a few yards back, is the UFO creeping out of the darkness, hovering just over the ground like Elmer Fudd sneaking up on Bugs Bunny. It's close to being a really interesting picture, but something about it is just so fake. It gets worse. You have to remember, this is a book after all, and Ed wants to tell a good story. If you remove the images from this, it might work. It's freaky. There is something intriguing, and there's lots of tension and questions of sanity. Whether or not Ed and Francis were seeing this craft in the sky, the reaction by the town and by them is so interesting and tells a story about humanity when it's questioning its own reality. But the photos, they were so exciting. They were probably the best part of this story. Now they start to be the downfall. On January 26th, Ed was feeling very beaten down. Two days earlier, a supposed encounter with the UFO had left him shaken, and he now believed the UFO was trying to hurt him. A documentary had been filmed about the sighting set to air the following week. Ed tried to cancel the airing, but his friend talked him down. That same night, the UFO reappeared. Ed was in the shower when he saw it. He threw on a towel and ran outside furious. Here is the exact quote according to the book. Quote, Damn it, land or get the hell out of my life. End quote. The accompanying photo is a comedy masterpiece. Ed is standing there next to a pool wearing just a towel. His hands are raised in anger, shaking both fists in the sky. Far in the distance, almost appearing like it's uncomfortable by Ed's action, is the UFO just dangling there, glowing. Ed's stance is cold and mannequin-like, as if he's posing while Francis snapped the photo. It's, it's so weird. It's just so weird. And then the final picture, probably the funniest one, is a photo that has to be seen to be believed. February 7th, 1988. Francis is outside the house feeding their outdoor cats. As she returned to the house, a blue beam sizzled in front of her. The craft was supposedly attacking. Francis looked up to see its glowing bottom, and as she ran for the door, another blast just missed her. Ed, of course, snapped a photo. It is unbelievable. Francis is diving through a door, head tilted down in a jogging position, though the photo has the same mannequin quality as if Francis started running and then paused just in time in the doorway. To the left of her is a semi-transparent beam of blue light. It looks like a lens flare. And that's where they lose me. I want to believe I do. If that makes me sound crazy, I completely understand. But if history is any indication, certainty is a false comfort. This upcoming Wednesday, May 1st, will be the 31st anniversary of the last UFO sighting in Gulf Breeze by the Walters family. Ed was alone, snapping photos along the sound when the craft appeared suddenly and, according to his account, abducted him for one hour and 15 minutes. He offers no other theories. In the following few years, many parts of Ed's story started to be broken apart. First, in 1990, someone new moved into the old Walters house. The Walters had moved out, favoring somewhere outside of the formerly idyllic Gulf Breeze. The new resident of the house claimed to have found a model UFO in the attic. Made of two pie tins with a light on top and a piece of paper around the middle, the craft resembles the object seen in the Gulf Breeze sighting photos exactly. Then, several residents of Gulf Breeze came out later saying that Ed had shown them how to do double exposure photography with his Polaroid, having two images plastered over the other to look like one image. Some even say they saw him take these staged photos. 
Lastly, several members of MUFON, the UFO group investigating with Ed, said that the story was false and they had disavowed previous research. Ed and Francis, however, never backed down. The Cold War ended three years after the last Gulf Breeze sighting. With the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the falling of the Berlin Wall, that 44-year conflict had reached its end. No one knew back in 1947 that one declaration by the Soviets would mark the beginning of such an ordeal. No one knew what dangers the Soviets could present. We had created an air force to keep our skies safe, and in the same period, foreign objects were appearing amongst the stars, bringing down planes and sending messages into our minds. Let's say you had never heard of the concept of UFOs. Now, let's say we had just left an incredibly terrifying and dangerous war. Within a few years, an entirely different country had decided that we were the bad guy, and to prepare for war with them, we had missled up and created an air force. Then people out in the desert are seeing lights in the sky. They don't know what they are, they're in a shape that they've never seen, they're flying in weird patterns. Wouldn't you believe? What does the American consciousness become when we are filled with uncertainty? We are likely to believe many things. Humanity seeks to find order in the chaos. Maybe Ed really did see something in the Florida skies that November evening in 1987. I want to believe that he did. But maybe these photos aren't evidence of visitors from outer space. I think these photos are proof that when uncertainty looms and the world's fate is out of our hands, we'd like to find something that is. Even if that means that we fabricate a story where a flying saucer descends from the heavens at just the right altitude so that we can take a picture, pin it down, and feel for just one moment like we are in control. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes, the Floridian podcast. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you did, please consider leaving a review or sharing it with a friend. This show can only grow with your help, so please share it, tell me how much you're enjoying it, maybe leave a 5-star rating below. You can also find the show on Twitter at Wait5Minutes or on Instagram at Wait5MinutesPodcast. If you have an episode idea, I'm always looking for them, please email me at Wait5MinutesPodcast at gmail.com. All of the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. The titles for those are in the description below, along with all of the links used in the research. Next Friday, I'm very excited for this one, the story of the little town of Okahumka in Lake County. I sat down with Pulitzer Prize winning author Gilbert King to discuss Lake County, racism in Florida, and the ways we preserve history. It was great. It's a it's a beautiful place, and it has so much history. When you think of like the Seminoles and yeah. and and you know being moved into the swamps back in the 1800s, and all of this history around Okahumka, it was a thriving town so long ago, and now it's just there's barely like I think one stoplight. Yeah. Um, and the population is still in the hundreds. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others, and please grab yourself a reusable water bottle, and with it, drink more water. Have a great weekend, everyone.